This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. Volume 5, Number 3, from March of 1927. Three Things I Know Written by Joseph Fort Newton Three times in my life a vision has visited me, each time more vividly than before. Each time it has come at the end of an hour of inner struggle and crisis, as if to light up a dark perplexity and show me the one way to go. No doubt, such visions are the focus and glow point of much that has been going on in us below the surface of thought. And if that is their source, it's also their sanction and power. Always it is a vision of an old gray cathedral, in the form of a cross, stately, imposing, piteous, a shrine of faith and fellowship, and withal delicately poised as if it had come down from above instead of being built up from below. It is Gothic in its majesty and mystery, the form of architecture created and glorified by the genius and history of Freemasonry, at once its achievement and its monument, the noblest form of art, embodying the aspiration of humanity, the while it makes God eloquent upon earth. How stately and awe-inspiring it is in my vision! The lift of its pillars, the leap of its arches, its glorious dome, and to the ear of the mind melodious with a voice that cannot be forgotten when once it has been heard. The chancel and the altar are invisible, not in darkness but in a blinding light, dark with excess of light, as of one whose presence is an altar. There is no face but the sight of a sweeping garment, vast and white. And yet, while no voice reaches me adown the aisle, Somehow I know who the speaker is and what he is saying. Once again, in a framework of Gothic glory, he's speaking the words that he spoke of old, on the mountain and beside the sea, words of eternal life which defy time. Hardly less wonderful is the audience gathered under that high and hospitable roof, the most extraordinary assembly of which any man ever dreamed. The mighty prophets of the older world are there, the way-showers of mankind, Moses, the moral lawgiver of the race, Confucius, who dreamed of the superior man, the all-pitiful Buddha, whose religion is the most majestic symphony of melancholy in the whole compass of human history. Socrates, the father of philosophy, is there, alongside Plato, the angel-minded idealist, and Aristotle, the father of science, patient, exact investigator who anticipated, in flashes of insight, so much of what has been verified later. Prophets and apostles are there, Isaiah with his golden voice, the saints in their shining company, and others whose presence surprises me, Voltaire, Gothi, and Hume. The finely chiseled profile of Emerson is distinct. What a company it is! Such is my vision at once a consummation and a consecration, 
And its crowning fact is that while the speaker utters once more with that voiceless voice the truths which are the Magna Carta of the spiritual life of mankind, I see all those gathered in the cathedral nodding assent and saying, each in his own heart, Amen, Amen. Someday, perhaps, by the mercy of God, if I'm counted worthy, it may be more vivid still, and some tone of that voice may echo in my ears and become a melody in my heart. So far a vision, and what does it mean? It's a vision of unity, embracing the ends of the earth and the limits of history, all religions and all races, looking backward and forward, and out of it have grown certain convictions which, like the rock ribs which hold the earth together, hold my life. First of all, religions are many, but religion is one. Perhaps we may say one thing, a divine life in the soul of man, underflowing the thickest ice of theory. All just men, all devout men, all spiritually minded men are everywhere of one religion, and all are trying to say the same thing, each in his own tongue, with his own accent and emphasis, the speech of each colored by his environment and the degree of his spiritual development. All are participators in one common spiritual life, which they seek to interpret. Such a conviction makes me utterly indifferent to the small things which divide men into different religions and sects. In the light of my vision, there is only one church, universal and eternal, and all good men belong to it. The devout life is the same, albeit differently phrased, in Plutarch and Spinoza, in Francis and Channing. What Solomon called wisdom and Plato justice and St. Paul charity are one and the same virtue, the treasure of all and the consecration of each. The different religions, and, by the same fact, the various churches, to me are like so many rooms in one home of the soul, and I walk from room to room in my Father's house. Wherever men seek righteousness and lift up hands in prayer, I am at home. No matter what the name of the temple may be, where love is, there God is. Because God is love, and the religion of love is the one external gospel. Such an attitude is no mere blur of sentiment in which truth is lost in a mist. Rather, it's a vivid sense of the higher unity of things which differ, and of the depths where humanity is one in its nature and need, as truth is one in its light and liberty. My second conviction is that all good men everywhere, all men seeking goodness, are trying to do the same thing. Jesus saw this when he said, Those who are not against us are for us, meaning that all workers for the good are his helpers. Good men may differ as to method, but their motive is the same. To refine the faith of humanity, to exalt its mind, to purify its spirit to build it up in righteousness. Above all seekers after goodness shine the same starry ideals. If Confucius speaks of the superior man, he means what we mean by the Christian man. That is to say, there is one great moral enterprise in the world, and all good men are partners in it. Such a faith is a profound consolation in that it brings the reinforcement of fellowship to those who follow lonely trails and stand for the ideal against all odds. It's both an inspiration and a consecration to know that we are not alone in our struggle for the good. 
It gives us patience and power. Of these two convictions is born another, and that is the necessity of fraternity, since the great things can only be done together by a united effort. Hence my deep interest in all forms of togetherness, in the church and in the lodge, and my longing to see men learn the art of cooperation. The great cathedrals were not built by one man, or even by one architect, but by a fraternity working in harmony, employing every gift in the service of one vision and plan. Not otherwise may we hope to build a better world order, in which the rule of moral reason shall overcome bigotry and brutality. Take, for example, war, which must be abolished if civilization is to endure. It's not necessary to get away from human nature in order to abolish war. No, it's only necessary to get man away from a false and foolish idea. What power can do it? Pestilence, famine, war, these three, but the worst of these is war. Science has killed one pestilence after another, and they lie like dead snakes by the side of the road. Swift intercommunication makes it possible to send relief from one part of the world to another in times of famine. Only religion can put an end to war. Only a creative and cooperative spiritual life, renewed, united, sagacious, sacrificial, can kill the spirit of strife in the hearts of men and make war impossible. It will take the whole power of religion to do it. A petty sectarianism is utterly futile. It can be done. It must be done. To doubt it is to deny the reality of God the rule of reason, and the power of the moral ideal over the life of man. But I am thinking today of that Gothic cathedral, stately and lovely in my vision, uplifted by the art and skill of Freemasonry as a framework of fellowship and an altar of faith, its pointed arches prophetic in the expectation of man, its vistas like forest aisles, its towers a nesting place of dreams. It is the great landmark of masonry, the design upon its trestle board, the end and aim of all its labor. It's also a parable of the service of masonry to the faith of man. As of old, it built the cathedrals. So today, it toils to build a shelter for the holy things of man, where religion may grow and be glorified. For, while masonry is not a religion, it is nonetheless a friend of all benign faiths, seeking to lay the foundations of the religion in which all men agree. What are those foundations? Three things I know about Freemasonry, not much else, though I've studied it for twenty years and more. It rests upon three fundamental facts, the first of which is that man was made for righteousness. No man can be a man, much less a happy man, until he is a righteous man. All evil ways have been tried before, with the same result, defeat, blight, tragedy. Byron, in his wildest year, wrote to Tom Moore, quote, Virtue, I begin to see, is the only thing that will do in this damned world. Unquote. Exactly. The universe was built on that plan. The man who fancies that the moral order is a fiction is taught the truth by terror and death. As Byron found at 37, his manhood shriveled into a sere and yellow leaf. 
Proofs could not be plainer if they were written in letters of fire in the blue sky. Kant was right. The two overwhelming mysteries are the still depth of a starlit night and the awful whisper of the moral law in the soul of man. Explain it how you will. Describe it as the echo within us of an old ancestral memory. That is only to push the mystery further back. The original bias toward righteousness remains to be accounted for. There is in man what John Woolman called a stop in the mind, something which arrests us and compels us to pass moral judgment upon our thoughts and acts. What this voice is we may not know, but it cannot be hushed. It is here in my own heart. I did not create it. It commands me, whether I will or no. The fatalistic philosophy now in vogue may tell us that we are no more responsible for our acts than we are for the color of our eyes. It may be plausible, but every man knows that it's false. Upon this foundation, masonry builds and finds it solid. It is the cornerstone of all theology, the key to any understanding of life. Man was made for righteousness, and he cannot escape. Markham has a vivid little poem telling how a man, despairing of the good life, leapt wildly into the darkness of death, only to find himself face to face with the old duty and the old despair. There is no hope of happiness, here or hereafter, until we do justly and serve the good. To know that fact and govern ourselves accordingly is the beginning of wisdom and the first truth of religion. Second, man is made for man. Fraternity is not a luxury, but a necessity and the very essence of religion, if it is to have any reality or worth. No man can attain to moral character, much less to spiritual personality, apart from his fellow men. Talent may develop in solitude, but character is the creation of fellowship. Here again, Masonry builds upon a fact revealed in experience, that we are made for one another. Our lives fit one into another like the stones of a temple. As we're taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, if man will not help man in dire plight, his religion is in vain, and his ritual mere rote without meaning. Nay, more, man cannot know the highest truth alone, but only in fellowship. It is by the practice of brotherhood that we learn to know God, the Father. My little poem may limp and falter, but it tells the truth. Quote, it takes a father and a mother, two men and God, to make a brother, and show him the truth no one may know alone or teach another. The truth of God that makes man glad and free is learned together. On land and sea, in joy and woe, in sunny days, and stormy weather. End of quote. Third, man was made for God, and his spirit is homeless and alone, even in the warmest human fellowship, until at last, together, we find our source and peace in God, from whom we come and to whom we return in the last ineffable homeward sigh of the soul. The light that flashes across the soul in moral law and spiritual faith like sparks ascending seek the sky, whence it came, reveals, if we have eyes to see, 
the veiled kindness of the Father of Man. One of the greatest minds of any age tells us in a shining sentence whence we came, whither we go, and why we're restless and unhappy until we find our home. Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. These things I know, and they are the foundation upon which masonry builds the cathedral of piety and prayer. To me, therefore, masonry is a form of the divine life upon earth, a moral mysticism by which men of all types of temperament and training are drawn together and trained to be brothers and builders. The simplicity of its symbolism, the depth of its large, wise, and kindly philosophy, no less than the strength of its fellowship, fills me with wonder and joy. It helps me to join hands with my fellows and to do something, if it be only a little before the end of the day, to make a gentler, wiser, kinder world. This has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AF&AM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.